Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Molly. Molly, today we're talking about iconic cosmetics. An article that was written for HowStuffWorks by you. That's true. Actually, in the intro of the article, uh, talks about Mary Kay. Right, because I saw her, that pink Cadillac, mm-hmm. as just, you know, an icon of the cosmetics world in its own right, despite yes. the fact that it's not actually a cosmetic. Yes, and I thought that I would I would share for a moment about how uh, Mary Kay was a uh, milestone in my own life. A guiding as, force? Yeah, well, I don't know if I'd call it a guiding force, but certainly a significant chapter in my girlhood, because... Uh, my mother did um, this thing for me and me and my sisters. It was sort of this rite of passage for us. We had at 12 years old, we got our ears pierced. And then I think at like 13 or something, the Mary Kay consultant came over to the house for each of you and taught us how to put makeup on. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was kind of the sign that, okay, you are becoming a woman now. Cover your face up as fast as possible with makeup. Um, so, yeah. So what do you remember of your time with the Mary Kay lady? Well, I, you know, we sat down at, at the breakfast room table and she put, I just remember wanting to explore her makeup bag because she brought over all so many samples and so many different colors. And I mean, we really only did the boring stuff, like how to put on concealer and how to put on foundation and all of that. And I wanted to, you know, go crazy with some eyeshadow. But those are vital life lessons, Kristen. Vital life lessons that apparently I didn't take to heart too well because I don't really know how to put makeup on my face now. Did you get to purchase a bunch of Mary Kay cosmetics after your session? Yeah, I kind of got the starter kit, Mm -hmm. you know, just really basic stuff. I mean, I was pretty young, so I wasn't wearing lipsticks. You weren't all dolled up quite yet. (laughs) Not quite yet. Yeah, that was 14. <laughs> so, yeah. So that's pretty interesting. So you were influenced by this worldwide brand yeah, of makeup. Because absolutely. I think the Mary Kay story is pretty impressive. She started the company in 1963 when she was 45 with just $5,000 in savings. Five years later, the company has passed the million-dollar sales mark. Yeah. And that's when she decided to go get that pink Cadillac that she still get, that the company still gives to the top performers. And uh, she got that color because she pulled out a compact and said, this color, I want my car in this color, which is pretty, pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. They, you know, I hope to one day have the means to just walk into a dealership and point to something random and be like, get me something that color. <laughs> I wholeheartedly believe that will happen, Molly. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so, but moving on from Mary Kay, because, you know, Mary Kay Cosmetics, while, yes, the brand itself is somewhat iconic in its own way. We're talking about specific cosmetics that really revolutionized, I don't know, what would you say, Molly, the uh, world, the world, yeah, or at least our makeup bags. Sure. Yeah. Because this is one that I have in mine and that my mother had in hers. And I just, this is what I grew up with. Mm-hmm. Oil of Olay, or as it is technically known, Olay. Olay. That's right. Um, it is the best selling skincare product in the world. And it was developed by this guy, Graham Wolf, who wanted to develop a better facial cream for his wife, Dinah. He was a chemist in South Africa. And he um, basically took this newfound knowledge about lanolin and applied it to 
face cream. Yeah, and I think that this is going to be sort of a recurring pattern we'll see in this podcast of men listening to the women in their lives to come up with better makeup products because he saw the wife, Dinah, just putting on these really thick, greasy facial creams every night. And uh, he figured there had to be something that would look natural, that would still protect the skin, that would hold in moisture, but that you just wouldn't be able to see. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Dinah had to serve it as his guinea pig all through his testing. You know, he would whip up something in the lab and tr- they tried that on. And uh, finally, he set on the perfect formula for what he called a beauty fluid because uh, it made a woman beautiful. You couldn't see it. It just gave her that glow, that mm-hmm. finish she needed, mm-hmm. held that moisture in. Yeah, and the, and the logic behind his beauty fluid was to make it as close to the skin's own sebum or its natural oil as possible. Hence, you know, the oil of Olay name. And it's, it's kind of a nice little uh, husband-wife duo invention story, too, because uh, they not only worked on the product together, just like the actual formulation, but also uh, worked on how well it absorbed into the skin skin and the texture, the color, that iconic pink shade, mm. and uh, and then also the fragrance. And all those factors have combined together to make it, as Kristen said, the best-selling skincare product in the world. Yeah. It launched in South Africa in 1953, and now it's a huge worldwide brand. It's everywhere. And it did go by different names uh, when it was in different worldwide markets, but in 2000, the company that owned it said it's uh, just going to be Olay. And so it has been. Now let's move on to iconic cosmetic number four, Kristen. Mm-hmm. Uh, I chose Revlon Fire and Ice when I was writing this article. And when I read this article, Molly, I hadn't heard of Revlon Fire and Ice before. But I think it's such a great it's such a great story because Revlon started out in 1932 as solely selling nail polish. And it was pretty good nail polish because other nail polishes of the time were made with pigments. Mm -hmm. And this nail polish was made with dye, so it would go on smoother, it would last longer. It was a very high-quality product. And uh, in 1940, it's that's when Revlon was like, hey, we'll, we'll do lipsticks to match this. And they were really smart about advertising, and that's part of the reason why I found the Revlon story so compelling. Because uh, they, they were just so smart about advertising all the way through those early years. Uh, when they had those lipstick nail polish duos, they would um, time the release to the fashion launches. Mm-hmm. Because if there were women who couldn't afford the latest fashion, they could still feel a little fashionable by splurging on this lipstick nail polish duo. And we've talked about the lipstick indicator before. Mm-hmm. This guy was right on the money in that if women just have a little bit of money to spend, they can spend it on lipstick. Yeah, and Revlon really made... Um made the idea of this lipstick nail polish combo to be an actual fashion accessory, not just something, you know, something you just buy at the drugstore, something that you needed to complete that perfect outfit. And then in 1952, the company just exploded with this marketing campaign called Fire and Ice. And a lot of the backstory on this advertising campaign comes from a book called Fire and Ice by Andrew Tobias, which uh, tells the story of Charles Revson, who was sort of the the genius behind all these marketing efforts. And what Revson does is he creates what, what Tobias believes is the first campaign to link makeup and sex directly. Seems pretty natural now, mm-hmm. but first one who did that. And uh, what he did was he came up with all these questions in the advertisement mm-hmm. 
to uh, to help a woman figure out if she was a fire and ice girl. Yeah, are you made for fire and ice? And the model, Dorian Lee, was dressed in this, you know, really skin-tight, gorgeous evening gown, and she had this this bright red lipstick and uh, a nail polish on that really popped off of this this sparkling white silver gown. And uh, and so then they would ask you these questions, such as Molly. You ready for a few? I want to find out if you. Oh, were- you want to ask me? Okay, I'll ask you a few. Yeah. Kristen, have you ever danced with your shoes off? Yes, I have. Ooh, you might be a fire and ice girl. You have to answer yes to eight of these 15, which we'll run through really quick. So just keep track at home about if you can get to eight. Have you ever danced with your shoes off was one. Do you ever wish on a new moon? Kristen? No, I don't think I do. Okay. Do you blush when you find yourself flirting? Unfortunately. When a recipe calls for one dash of bitters, do you think it's better with two? I don't drink things with bitters. That seems old-fashioned and of the 1950s, when it's, which is when this ad came out. Okay, this is a juicy one. Do you secretly hope the next man you meet will be a psychiatrist? No, because then he'll be able to instantly detect my inner flaws. <laughs> Do you sometimes feel that other women resent you? No. Have you ever wanted to wear an ankle bracelet? God, no. <laughs> What if it was an ankle alcohol monitoring bracelet? <laughs> well, in that case. <laughs> okay, here's another one that I think you can tell uh, that this was very much a 1950s mm-hmm. ad campaign and not a politically correct one. <laughs> Do sables or furs excite you, even on other women? Oh, yes, Molly. <laughs> Do you love to look up at a man? I'm kind of tall, so when it happens, I guess it's kind of nice. <laughs> Do you face crowded parties with panic, then wind up having a wonderful time? I hope so. Does gypsy music make you sad? (laughs) I cry myself to sleep every night listening to gypsy music, Molly. Do you think any man really understands you? No. God, no. (laughs) Would you streak your hair with platinum without consulting your husband? I wouldn't do anything without (laughs) consulting my husband. (laughs) If tourist flights were running, would you take a trip to Mars? I'm a little scared. Scared of, of, uh, no, I don't think I would. Don't like outer space? Uh, Do you close your eyes when you're kissed? <laughs> yes. So those are the 15 questions. I felt really bashful about answering that last one. <laughs> Trying to get a little, it's a little, little personal. personal, but <laughs> but that's what Ramson was trying to do. He was trying to aim at all these, you know, brash, kind of confident things about women in the 50s mm-hmm. that would, they would want to. Either if they if they didn't embody them now, it was the ideal of what you would want to embody at that time. Mm-hmm. And Tobias points out that at the at the time there was this idea of European women being really provocative and sexy and all of this, and American women were kind of just being being left out of the they dark. They certainly weren't excited by sables, even on other yeah. women. They kept their eyes clo- <laughs> open when they kissed, all sorts of things. And so they wanted to play on this uh, this idea of American women being being just as exciting and and attractive as European women. And it worked. That campaign is is uh, that year it won best advertising campaign of the year and then, you know, since that time has been heralded as one of the most unique advertising campaigns in terms of selling makeup to women. Mhm. Now, speaking of selling makeup to women, Kristen, here's a tagline you may have heard over and over again. Maybe she's born with it. Maybe it's Maybelline. I do indeed know that tagline. (laughs) I feel like we've been bombarded with that tagline, but I was surprised to learn that it only came into being in 1991. 
Isn't that insane? It is kind of crazy considering that T.L. Williams, who uh, came up with Maybelline Cosmetics, actually started out in 1913 working on a new kind of uh, mascara for his sister, Mabel. Right. Again, another example of a, of a man paying attention to a woman's needs mm-hmm. because Mabel would use petroleum jelly and coal dust to make her eyelashes look dramatic. And old T.L. was like, this seems like a pretty good product. I'm going to I'm going to form this company to market it. And at first he sold mascaras just like a cake mm-hmm. that you kind of like paint it on. But by the 1960s, they've got the tubes with the brush applicators becoming the first mass marketed mascara to use that feature. And uh, today it's estimated that every two seconds, at least one tube of Maybelline Great Lash Mascara is sold in the United States. Every two seconds. So imagine the number. How many? How long have we been podcasting, Mom? I don't know. So much mascara has been sold. That's how I'm going to measure units of my life from now on. Yes. So I guess if it's every two seconds, then one minute is 30 Maybelline Great Lashes. Wow. So you you want to meet up for a drink in 30 Maybelline Great Lashes? <laughs> that, that's an example of how I'd use yeah, that. I, I see. One thing I'd say, too, that uh, Maybelline Mascara has in common with the Revlon Fire and Ice Nail Polish Lipstick Combo, is that Maybelline was really successful at turning this one small cosmetic into that, you know, that lipstick, that little luxury that women Mm -hmm. can have. There's an article in the New York Times talking about the mascara industry. And in 2006, Americans spent almost $1.3 billion on it. It's insane. Well, yeah, $1.3 billion, which was a 71% increase over 1997. So we're buying more and more mascara. And it makes sense because it seems like every time you, you know, turn on the TV or flip through a women's magazine, there's some new insane kind of mascara that's supposed to make your lashes doubled and tripled and won't smear and, you know, make you the most beautiful woman in the world. And I will also say mascara is the only beauty product that I can tell when it's gone bad. You know how you're supposed to regularly clean out your makeup? I feel like mm-hmm. mascara is the only one I can tell. Mm-hmm. They're like, oh, this needs to go. But for everyone else who's more savvy about that and writes the start dates on their cosmetics, then that will just seem silly. <laughs> so that was our number three iconic cosmetic, the Maybelline Mascara. And number two is Max Factor Pancake. Now, unlike some of these other cosmetics we've been talking about, I'd say that Pancake has pretty much gone out of... Cosmetic Vogue. Yeah, I don't really, I don't think I've ever gone to a cosmetics counter and asked for any pancake. The only time that I've ever actually used pancake was when, again, I was a younger girl and I would take ballet. And when I would uh, have my... When you would perform? When I would perform for the the masses, uh, I'd have to put on pancake. Well, and the the makeup was made for performers. Yeah, it was made for the stage. That makes sense. Um... And you know, what's pretty cool about Max Factor is that it's not just Pancake that makes them an iconic company. They are just associated with all these firsts in the world of cosmetics. In fact, the word makeup is thanks to Max Factor because he was trying to distinguish it from cosmetics. Mm -hmm. Because uh, back in the day, in the uh, the early 20th century, cosmetics really didn't have a very good reputation because it was associated with actresses. And trollops. And trollops. And back then, being an actress was not exactly the most well-respected 
um, profession for a woman. And so with the rise of the movie industry, Max Factor was able to link up this idea of celebrity and glamour and beauty with makeup. The first real celebrity endorsement, mm-hmm. the first real product that regular women saw on celebrities and were like, I want that too. And so he gets to start making this foundation when uh, they make the transition from the stage to the screen mm-hmm. because you need different makeup for both. But then when Technicolor comes along, the makeup is not looking good in color. Yeah, it's doing some weird, casting some weird tinting on it. So in 1937, he comes up with the pancake, which is both transparent but able to cover all those skin perfections. The Hollywood actresses love it. They demand to take it home after a movie shoot, mm-hmm. and that is when the regular people see, whoa, I want, I want what that celebrity is wearing. Right, because before Pancake came out, um, he came up with this tagline called the makeup for the stars and you, which really linked celebrity and beauty. Just marketing genius on Max Factor's part. Marketing genius. Now, I think the idea of linking celebrity and beauty takes us well into iconic cosmetic number one, which is perfume. Mm-hmm. specifically Chanel number no. five. And the reason it has such a celebrity connotation is because there's this famous quote from Marilyn Monroe that the only thing she wore to bed was a few drops of Chanel number no. five. Mm-hmm. It's perhaps one of the most glamorous perfumes, definitely the yes. best known perfume, I'd say. That's why I put it number one on the list. I mean, it's a great list. Mom. It wins <laughs> because not only is the perfume famous, but the bottle's famous. Andy Warhol would paint it and do screen work of it. And, you know, here's another way to measure time. Every 55 seconds, a bottle of Chanel number no. five is sold somewhere in the world. So maybe you could be like, I'll meet you in, uh, in a great lash and two Chanel's. Yeah. I like it. I'm sure no one else no will. One would get it <laughs> at all, but it's been around since 1921 and it was developed by Coco Chanel and a perfumer, Ernest Beau. And what's kind of interesting is Chanel had no interest Mm-mm. in doing perfumes. Yeah. She thought that they were superficial, distasteful. She thought that these people just need to take a bath instead of putting on something that would disguise their smell. Right, because at that time, all of the perfumes were pretty much flower scents, like Mm -hmm. really, really heavy flower um, scents with really ornate bottles and kind of frilly names. And Coco Chanel was not really into that. She was not frou-frou at all. No. So um, what actually attracts her to the perfume world is not just that one scent of something but rather her perfumer brings her this idea of aldehydes or in synthetic ingredients. And I think it's kind of interesting that, you know, today I think we're all about natural products, mm-hmm. all natural. And this successful perfume is made from synthetics, but they're synthetics that happen to bring out the natural smell of something uh, more strongly or more robustly. Mm-hmm. And the two main fragrances in Chanel number no. five are jasmine and rose. But there was an article that also points out that Chanel number no. five is the world's first abstract fragrance. You can't really pinpoint what Chanel number no. five smells like. It doesn't smell like lilies or strawberries or what have you. And I think also when you use the word abstract, I think the other four cosmetics we've talked about, Kristen, are very much um, women centered. Mm-hmm. They very much talk about what it means to be a woman. And so did the advertising campaigns just as distinctly, especially if you think about like fire and ice, mm-hmm. it's like, this is a woman, this is a woman. And Chanel was pretty much the opposite of that, despite the fact that she is such a emblem of femininity today. Mm-hmm. 
And even though we just talked about how you can't pinpoint what Chanel Number no. 5 smells like, the New York Times perfume critic Chandler Burr, I think, does a pretty poetic job, at least getting us in the general direction. So he said that Chanel Number no. 5 hits you like a bank of white-hot searchlights washing the powdered stars at a movie premiere in cans on a dry summer night. If you haven't smelled it in a while, do so again. It's great to bathe in that light. And that's really, I think, the description every woman wants yeah. attributed to her. Absolutely. White-hot lights. Mm-hmm. So that's our list. That was the five iconic cosmetics that we came up with after this research. The article is on HowStuffWorks.com, but that doesn't mean those are the only five cosmetics that are iconic. You might have your own list. And if so, we want to hear it. Send us an email at MomStuff at HowStuffWorks.com. And I think we've got time for a listener email or two, Kristen. Sure. Well, I've got one here from Celia about our podcast on chivalry. She said, when I first started dating, I never felt comfortable with guys paying for my movie tickets, dinners, or drinks. To solve this, if he paid for dinner, I paid for the movies, or I tried to leave the tip. After all, I know how hard I work for my money. I've treated friends and boyfriends to dinner, and they've treated me. But when on a first date, I always feel very uncomfortable knowing that he's paying for everything. I've always been pretty pretty firm about my stance, because the idea of being taken care of by a man for no other reason than his being a man and my being a woman makes me so uneasy. Now I'm in a long-term relationship, so it's not really an issue. All of our money has been pulled together. So if I use my debit card or he uses his, it comes out of the same account. All right. Very interesting. And I have one from Marcus. And the same, basically the same email was also sent to us by our listener Jane and perhaps many more listeners by the time this one actually airs. It's about the celibacy podcast, Kristen. All right. And despite the fact that we... Oh, I know where this is going. Yeah, despite the fact that we based the entire episode on some Seinfeld episodes, we did get a few factors on Seinfeld wrong. We got our Seinfeld all mixed up. And I think the problem is is that I tend to watch the reruns that are on like really late at night, Mm -hmm. and it just all... It starts to get jumbled in your dream world. I probably shouldn't make excuses, but I will read what our adept Seinfeld listeners let us know. First off, you stated that George was the one offended by the double dipper when actually George was the one double dipping. His girlfriend's relative, a brother, I think, but it may have been a cousin, <laughs> accused George of double dipping at a funeral and they ended up fighting and knocking over the casket. Secondly, George becomes celibate because his girlfriend thinks she has mono. In the process of becoming celibate, he becomes smarter. Elaine is dating a man who can't pass his medical exam, so she cuts him off. He passes the exam and dumps her. The Master of Your Domain episode where they make a bet about who can withhold from gratifying themselves the longest is a completely different episode. So, there you go. Sorry about the Seinfeld errors. Whoops. (laughs) (laughs) But if you spot any errors or just have something to say to us, let us know. It's momstuff at howstuffworks.com. You can also find us on Facebook and on Twitter. And we have a blog that's also called Stuff I Never Told You, and you can find that at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Want more HowStuffWorks? Check out our blogs on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? 